I'm Gracie Mae Bradley, and welcome to the first episode of the Locating Legacies series, created by the Stuart Hall Foundation, produced by Pluto Press, and funded by Arts Council England. The Stuart Hall Foundation was established in 2015 by Professor Stuart Hall's family, friends, and colleagues. It's committed to public education, addressing urgent questions of race and inequality in culture and society through talks and events, and building a growing network of Stuart Hall Foundation scholars and artists and residents. The Stuart Hall Foundation and Pluto Press have come together to bring you the Locating Legacy series, which is dedicated to situating present-day political and cultural phenomena within history to better understand and draw connections between some of the most urgent issues of our time. In this first episode on Stuart Hall, I speak to my friend Kojo Koram. Kojo is a writer and an academic teaching at the School of Law at Birkbeck College, University of London. In addition to his extensive academic writing, he's written for The New Statesman, The Guardian, Dissent, The Nation and The Washington Post and has appeared on CNN and Sky News. He's the editor of The War on Drugs and the Global Colour Line and author of Uncommonwealth, Britain and the Aftermath of Empire. Kojo and I are going to think through some of the themes in Stuart Hall's work pertaining to empire, neoliberalism and right-wing politics, and we'll discuss how Hall's work might be utilised in the face of economic, ecological and political crises. Kojo, you are obviously a good friend of mine, but I also, you know, would cite you as one of my big intellectual influences, as I'm sure you are for many people. And your academic work is really ambitious, you know, it spans racism, capitalism, empire, drug policy. And I see so many synergies between your work and Stuart Hall's. So I wonder if we could start there. Um, Stuart Hall's obviously a pioneer in the field of cultural studies. And I wonder if you could say a bit about why his work in that area was so groundbreaking and how it continues to help us to think and act on the world that we live in now. Thank you, first of all, for that overly generous introduction, Gracie, and it's wonderful to be in conversation with you and you know yourself that you've been an inspiration for me, not just intellectually, but politically as well. So happy to be in conversation, especially on this platform. And I think that that combination between a political commitment and an intellectual curiosity is something that I think maybe both of us, you know, draw on Stuart Hall as a real pioneer in that type of being a public intellectual, which is um, not something that we see as common in the kind of British academic context as we might see in some of the, whether it be the French or the American context, I think that Hall really arrived in the UK with this burning burning motivation to understand society which kind of recharacterized him outside of his own understanding of who he was you know he didn't understand himself in the context of that kind of um, violent histories of racism and colonialism as, as he mentions in a lot of his writing you know when he grew up in Jamaica in a much more kind of colonial elite more society but upon arrival in the united kingdom he starts to draw upon a plethora of different intellectual traditions whether that be literary whether that be cultural whether that be understandings of how pop culture new cutting-edge technologies like tv and cinema influence the way in which politics all constituted itself in the united kingdom um, he drew upon all these different traditions and i think left a real defining legacy not just in terms of the kind of arguments and insights that he offered, but in the way that he did them 
the value that he placed on collaboration, the value that he placed on building networks, the value that he placed on being both inside and outside the academy and drawing together um, social movements and political movements with a real rigorous scholarly um, discipline. And for me, um, I think the most recently, the side of Hall that I've really been kind of re-familiarising myself with isn't even the more common kind of cultural studies element of Hall, which people really understand him, um, understandably so, you know, consider him to be the real pioneer of. But I've been spending a lot more time, particularly in the run-up to um, my most recent book, which tried to look at the history of empire and its influence on contemporary Britain, not in the kind of cultural sphere, but more in the kind of economic and legal sphere. I found myself returning a lot to um, Hall's work on the emergence of neoliberalism in the United Kingdom, particularly his understanding of the way in which Thatcher really grounded this idea of the free individual um, with a tyrannical state that really smashed through a lot of the consensus politics of that of that post-war welfare state, you know, 20, 30-year moment. I think that because he had that understanding of how the aftermath of empire was really manifesting itself in the colonies, in Jamaica, in that lineage between, you know, what happens in the United Kingdom, you know, that, that idea of, you know, we are here because you were there, because he really grasped that understanding. I think that he was able to be quite clairvoyant in his understanding of the way in which Thatcherism was a real transformation of the political landscape in the United Kingdom, that it really you know, really was a redefining of the way in which people understood themselves in society, the way in which this kind of self-contained neoliberal subject, you know, the individual personal business that is trying to maximise its own profiteering was, as Thatcher said, a transformation of the soul, not just a transformation of the economic framework. And so in preparation for the last book, I found myself getting a lot of inspiration from Powell's work on, you know, his analysis of neoliberalism and free market economics, which is something that I don't think often we give them enough credit for. Mm. And I guess on that point, I wanted to talk a little bit about your most recent book, Uncommonwealth, because in that book and elsewhere, you've written quite extensively on what Aimé Césaire called the colonial boomerang. And Stuart Hall emphasised in his work that, and I'll quote here, it's only in the last phase of British imperialism that the labouring classes of the satellites and the labouring classes of the metropolis have confronted one another directly on native ground. You know, Stuart Hall was really keen to emphasise that that kind of popular and state racism of the 60s and 70s, like that was not, that wasn't the start of something, right? Um, that wasn't something that, you know, that was burgeoning anew. So I wonder, why is it so important that we understand the colonial boomerang? And on a related note, what is the rationale for the suppression of that understanding in uh, schools and in public discourse? Yeah, no, I think that it's such it's such a crucial concept that I really made it the kind of anchor of the argument in Uncommonwealth, this idea that the important thing about understanding Britain's imperial legacy isn't a kind of liberal, um, charitable sympathy for the violence that Britain has visited upon people, you know, whether that be in the Caribbean, whether that be in Asia, whether that be in Africa, you know, people in the colonial hinterlands, that isn't the driving importance of understanding the legacy of Britain's imperial 
endeavor, the importance of the idea of the colonial boomerang is that it reminds us that what happens in the colonial hinterlands doesn't simply stay there, doesn't simply disappear into this invisibilized ether of the outlands of the British Empire, that it creates techniques of governments, it creates techniques of wealth accumulation, it creates systems of profiteering that have an impact right in the very heart of empire eventually and blow back, boomerang back, ricochet back into the very core of the colonial metropole. And we can start to see that with a lot of the economic violence that people are struggling with in the United Kingdom, even in 2022, or even especially perhaps in 2022 and beyond. I think the whole recognized, like, you know, Césaire, like many other people, this idea of the boomerang isn't something that's particularly a novel idea, you know. M.A. Césaire and Suzanne Césaire as well, particularly his wife, really pushed this idea of the colonial boomerang when talking about the um, violence of mid-20th century European fascism, um, looking at the way in which the systems of dehumanization population control and eventually extermination that were visited upon the populations of countries like Italy and Germany had been practiced and refined in their own colonial projects. You know, whether you think about the Italians in Abyssinia or Eritrea, or you think about, you know, the German genocide in modern day Namibia, they understood that these techniques of violence had a consequence back home. And then, you know, People like Michel Foucault talks about it when he talks about the kind of security and governance structures of colonial policing in Algeria, then influencing the way the policing functions within metropolitan France. So a number of people have drawn upon that in relationship to systems of violence and systems of control, security and exclusion. And what I wanted to do with Uncommonwealth was show how that same dynamic influenced the economic crisis that people are wrestling with today to remind us that you know the consequences of imperialism aren't simply cultural aren't simply symbolic but they are very much material and they do influence how people live their day-to-day lives right up until today and so i guess on that point and i suppose also in relation to what you just said about colonial techniques of governance coming home to roost so to speak i wanted to think quite concretely and as i was sitting down doing my prep and my research for our conversation today you know I was thinking about how long I've known you for some of the political stuff that we've done together and I was reminded that one of the first actions that we ever went to together was a vigil in 2016 at Holloway Prison for Sarah Reid and as I was thinking again about that I remember the chant it was say her name Sarah Reid Black Lives Matter Right. So in 2016, we were saying Black Lives Matter, like, you know, and people have been saying it for much longer than that. But I was reminded, okay, right, it wasn't 2020. It wasn't only 2020. And so for those people who don't know, Sarah Reid was a black woman who was found dead in her cell at Holloway Prison in January 2016. And she had, in previous years, had to deal with the death of her baby. She had been assaulted by a police officer. And according to what she'd told her family, she'd been the victim of sexual violence while she was on a mental health ward. And Holloway Prison is closed now. And there's an ongoing campaign to ensure that it's redeveloped in the interests of the local community, including a demand for a community-run women's building. So six years really feels like a long time as I look back at that now. And I wonder how you feel looking back at that and how you feel things have shifted both 
in the UK and internationally in terms of the anti-carceral struggles of working class and racialized people? I mean, that is fascinating. And first of all, it makes me feel old, you know, that, that, that <laughs> six years, it does feel very distant in a way, whilst, of course, um, you know, not enough has changed and there's not been enough reform and revolution to the systems that we were trying to push back against back in that 2016. I think that it, like you say, reminds us that the driving kind of slogan of Black Lives Matter, that so much of this, whether it's decolonial, whether it's abolitionist, whether it's anti-carceral, whether it's anti-police and politics has been bracketed under, that this slogan is something that emerged, you know, even prior to 2016. Mm. You know, we forget that the initial emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement um, was in response to the um, protests around, you know, the murder of Trayvon Martin, you know, so 2014, when we first get, you know, Alicia and Patrice talking about Black Lives Matter, this first kind of bubblings of, of this movement, you know, by 2016, it's something that now starts to cross the Atlantic and starts to be taken up by activist movements in different jurisdictions. And I think that in 2016, what was notable was how unfamiliar and illiterate often the British public discourse was with ideas of racial justice and in terms of my own particular research interest, um, empire and legacies of empire and decolonization. You know, the very idea, the very word decolonization, you know, you would speak to TV producers and they would think you were speaking, you know, Martian, like it was completely absurd to them. Or the, the, the concept that like people might find the statue of Cecil Rhodes to be something offensive, despite, you know, the kind of genocidal politics of this person, you know, people acted like you had two heads if you were like, maybe it might be nice, you know, if I could go and get a coffee in the morning without walking past a, a you know, a genocidal colonialist. Mm -hmm. Whilst I think that that definitely has shifted. And whilst there's obviously a bit of a, you know, kind of frivolous culture war debate around revisiting history in the presence of historical figures in the public square. You know, is it destroying history or should there be a plaque put on it? You know, that's what the kind of new position is now that, oh no, well, you should explain the violent history of an Edward Colston or a Robert Mulligan or a Cecil Rhodes. You shouldn't pull down the statue. At least now I think there is an understanding that this is something that is intolerable to a large portion of the population. This is something that is you know, frankly, strange. And the idea that Britain had a 400-year empire and there's this kind of complete public ignorance about where that empire stretched to, you know, who it impacted, who were some of the major figures from it. Um, I think that that is something that has slightly changed over the last six years. But I think there's, you know, like I mentioned, and what I really try to push back against in Commonwealth is there's been a shift, I think, of tactics of opposition from back in 2016, this kind of blind ignorance and kind of dismissal of significance you know this idea of well why would anyone care you know why you know who why does it matter no one even notices these statues you know that was the kind of position in 2016 whilst i think now there's been a much more concentrated attempt to try and turn these type of conversations into this endless relentless culture war to make it as frivolous and as kind of petty as possible to try and reduce claims about wrestling with Britain's colonial legacy to, you know, debates around, you know, well, should the BBC remove all episodes of Forty Towers? You know, should they sing Land of Hope and Glory at the end of the national proms? You know, there's a tactic of almost drowning us in frivolous conversations around race, 
empire and its legacy in order to minimize i think from the more substantive arguments which is what you know people are really pushing back against in 2016 with the protests of holloway prison you know what is the treatment of black women in these type of institutions in mental health institutions in immigration detention centers like yarlswood in prisons like holloway prison you know what is the impact of the racial wealth gap what is the impact of systems of you know colonial wealth extraction that impoverish populations across vast swathes of the globe today that still have that legacy in the aftermath of British Empire. You know, that kind of hard material changes that impact people's everyday lives, I think, has been dismissed a little bit as the media and the kind of political discourse has tried to focus much more on the more symbolic and not that there's not, of course, incredible importance and value in the cultural sphere of it. You know, we can't be on a Stuart Hall platform whilst not recognising the power of the symbolic cultural. But I think there's been an attempt to try and push it into, you know, the most frivolous elements of that culture war discussion, you know, focusing on, you know, students at Oxford University want to, remove a portrait of the queen you know and that becomes the decolonial argument on good morning britain for a week or two you know should we have the queen should we not have the queen i think that has been a tactic to try and distract against some of the very real mechanisms of sovereign violence that we were protesting against at the 2016 vigil at holloway prison um for people like sarah reed yeah i would agree with that i suppose you can obviously see why that suits people in power and in the chattering classes very well. You can also see why it suits, you know, various progressive configurations pretty well. I mean, Labour have managed under Corbyn and under Starmer to get away with, okay, well, yeah, let's have more police. Okay, we'll introduce a new Race Relations Act. You know, there's been no kind of the debates that we're not having on BBC News or whatever. Those debates aren't should police have tasers or not? You know, should we have armed police or not? Why has a two-year-old died in a mouldy housing association flat, right? Those are not the, the things that are being put up on Good Morning Britain, you know, for, for very good reasons. So I would agree with your analysis there, definitely. Moving on, I mean, let's stick with your analysis, Kojo, because you relatively recently broke the internet with a New York Times piece that drew some really careful threads between Liz Truss's ideological leanings and Enoch Powell's. And in his essay on race and moral panics in post-war Britain, Stuart Hall defined powerlism as something larger, more significant than the explicit enunciation of new racially defined policies for the black population. He said that he meant the formation of an official racist politics at the heart of the political culture itself. Now, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng's tenure as Prime Minister and Chancellor kind of feels like a fever dream, except for the fact that we're all living with the ongoing material consequences of whatever the hell that was. But talk to me about why you felt it was important to make the intervention that you did and the influence of Stuart Hall's thinking on your analysis in that piece. No, thank you for that. Yeah, it feels like a fever dream for me as well, because I had to like, put my phone in a drawer for a week whilst the entirety of the British media, you know, condemned me as, you know, the worst thing. Somebody tweeted that it was the worst thing the New York Times had ever published in their entire history. Which I was wow. like, this, this is, you know, it's an institution that, like, you know, defended the war in Iraq. I thought, that that's absurd, you know. But I got my Daily Mail attack piece off it, so at least I have that marker of pride. And mm-hmm. since then, I've been staying away from the, you know, that culture war terrain. But I thought that the reason why I, first of all, made that intervention 
is I wanted to kind of shine a light on the on the intellectual milieu through which list trust emerged. And this isn't a controversial statement, you know, now these institutions are trying to distance themselves from the trust and quarting project. But, you know, the institutions that I'm talking about, particularly the Institute of Economic Affairs and the other Trufton Street think tanks, you know, the, the IEA, at the time of the mini-budget that was released by Truss and Quarting, described Truss as a politician that they'd incubated, that they had targeted Wen Young, you know, an emerging backbencher, you know, in the Britannia Unchained 2012 moments, and cultivated her as a potential rising star in the party in order to be able to implement their ideas around, you know, kind of radical tax cuts, increasing privatisation of wealth, and a real restructuring of the balance of equality in the British economy. These institutions, particularly the IEA, have played a really interesting subterranean role in British politics since the late 1960s, since set up by, you know, Anthony Fisher, Arthur Selden and Ralph Harris. And the importance of Powell in that argument is that Enoch Powell is the politician that mainstreamed the Institute of Economic Affairs. People can pretend that's a controversial statement, but it's just reflection of historical facts, that he was the first politician to partner with them, the first politician to write co-papers. Um, he was the first politician to champion them in Parliament. At the time in which they were seen as a very marginal institution, he really helped legitimise them within Conservative Party circles. And this is a side of power that we often forget because we simply focus on the kind of nativist, anti-migrant politics, which is a part of that larger constellation but it's not the entirety of it. You know, Powell is also, as the fantastic political professor Robbie Shilliam describes him as, really Britain's first neoliberal. Um, he's the man who Friedrich Hayek described as the politician who all of our hopes on rest in Britain. Um, you know, and he did a lot of ground-clearing way for the emergence of Margaret Thatcher, you know, who also had a very close relationship with the IEA and Anthony Fisher and Arthur Selden in particular. Um, the work of Powell to normalise ideas around the privatisation of British public resources, radical tax cuts, the um, removal of the fixed exchange rate and the free movement of capital across borders, really did a lot of kind of John the Baptist work for clearing the path for, for Margaret Thatcher to kind of emerge as, that, as the messiah of that type of neoliberalism a decade or so later. And I think that this is something that a lot of people ignore when trying to understand how Britain has changed its structure in its post-imperial age. And that's why I really wanted to try to make those arguments clear by seeing trust. You know, people always comparing trust as a kind of Thatcher, Thatcher recreation. I wanted to argue that with her kind of ideological commitment, you know, Thatcher was much more of a pragmatist than Powell. That's why she wasn't stupid enough to get up in Birmingham and start ranting about, you know, the black man whip over the white man. Powell was much more of an ideological a politician who shared a lot of the same politics as Thatcher but would try and drive them forward regardless of what the actual larger geopolitical and economic context was and Trust was a very similar type of politician which is why you know about three weeks after my article um, you know dropped to the New York Times and I was castigated by all the British media she tanked the British economy by you know trying to drive through a mini budget at a time in which even the kind of standard institutions of authority of capitalism, office of budget responsibility, you know, the entirety of the stock market, bond market, you know, was very clear. You can't try and drive through these radical tax cuts at, at this time of economic vulnerability. But 
because of that ideological commitment, which I said drew that lineage with Powell, you know, they took that gamble and, you know, the gamble did not pay off, neither for them or for millions of people in Britain who, like you mentioned, are living with the consequences of that. I think that the response and anger to that piece also had a lot to do with the fact that it was placed, you know, in the New York Times. And it's part of this larger kind of rage that certain corners of the British media are cultivated towards the New York Times or any kind of overseas press that is criticising, you know, the rather dire state that the British economy is being led by multiple Conservative governments. You know, I think if I'd have wrote the same piece in The Guardian, I don't think it would have got anywhere the same attention and definitely not the same vitriolic response. Sure. I think that it's a sign of insecurity at the moment, that there is such a fear about commentary about the direction of travel in the United Kingdom in overseas um, publications. But I think that the value of that piece, I hope, is that it might remind us in future generations, because I don't think that the trust quarting project for all of its kind of spectacular failure is going to be an ignored project. It's not a dead project. Similar in the way that Powell's, you know, his career exploded following the Rivers of Blood speech, but the intellectual vision that he had advanced was still bubbling under and was waiting for another champion to advance it into full realisation, which it did eventually with Margaret Thatcher. I think that we might see another politician, you know, in five, ten years' time in the Conservative Party try and push a very similar type of vision to Trust and Quarting with the support of those same intellectual think tanks in the background, and I hope that the piece is useful for reminding us how it collects this much longer lineage, you know, which Stuart Hall was very insightful of understanding, because that is what Powellism was really driven by. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, on that note, I mean, we talk about a politician maybe in five to ten years coming and picking up that project. I mean, they're intellectual bedfellows. Some of them are still in government. I mean, you've got Suella Braverman is still there, Dominic Raab is still there, and who knows in what kind of nightmarish ways they might continue to ascend through the ranks of the party. And I guess I wanted to move from trust to Sunak, but specifically to the fact that Rishi Sunak has signed off on the opening of a new coal mine in Cumbria, right? And given your excavation of the very deep cultural and economic ties and so on that bind Britain to its former colonies, I'm interested in what kinds of response to global climate catastrophe you think we should be demanding from our government and or building independently of government. I think recognising that when it comes to any of these kind of massive global crises, whether it's, you know, crisis of migration, climate, etc., Obviously, colonial history is only ever going to be part of the story. It's only ever going to be part of why we need to act, because, you know, even if that hadn't happened, right, our collective fate is we're all tied together anyway. But I'm interested, given your work and given that dynamic, kind of what your thoughts are on ecological crisis. No, absolutely. I think I think that this is, you know, I try to conclude the book with really wrestling with this question of, well, how can bring response to some of the oncoming epochal crises that we're facing, largest of which, you know, is, of course, the climate crisis with its, you know, potential apocalyptic consequences. I wanted to make a slight intervention in the book in the debate around climate catastrophe by trying to argue for the significant role that Britain still plays 
in the operation of global capitalism that is doing so much to accelerate the environmental devastation that we're all wrestling with. I think too often in the climate debate, we look at the more populous nations. You know, we look at CO2 emissions of China or India, Brazil, the United States, you know, for logical reasons, you know, quantifiably these are, you know, the countries that are contributing the most to pollution, you know, the largest, most populous, most industrialised nations, you know, these are the places that we um, focus on, almost to the extent that I think there's a little bit of the conversation around climate catastrophe in Britain that maybe says or hints that, well, we can do a little bit here and we can ask our government to change this and that, but it ultimately doesn't matter because, you know, it's going to be what China decides to do, it's going to be what India decides to do, it's going to be what Brazil, you know, with the strategic importance of the Amazon, whoever's in government in Brazil, whatever they decide to do, this is what's going to really affect the fate of the world. And I think that that is obviously true. I'm not trying to dismiss the importance of putting pressure on those particular governments, but what I try to argue in Commonwealth was how much of global capitalism still runs through the old former centre of the imperial world, the former global hegemon, you know, less than a century ago, which is still the United Kingdom. And it's that mechanism of global capitalism, it's the way in which so many of the world's largest companies continue to be registered either in the United Kingdom or, you know, more often in British overseas territories for offshore purposes, you know, this plays a role in their ability to be able to continue to exploit the material world and cause environmental damage. The way in which, you know, so much of global finance continues to run through the pathways of the City of London and Britain's offshore territories, you know, again, accelerates those dynamics of capital accumulation. The way in which, you know, I'm a, a legal scholar for my sins, um, <laughs> you know, teaching in a law school, and, you know, the more work that you put into investigating the role the Britain's legal system plays, um, the fantastic legal scholar Katrina Pistor in Colombia describes the English common law system and England system of courts as the code of capitalism, that this is the lexicon, this is the language that people translate their systems of profiteering into in order for them to be legitimised and to have translatability across all different borders. You know, this is the reason why 70% of the cases that are heard in the London Commercial Court concern companies and, and parties that are not registered in the United Kingdom, you know, that this is the place that the world's corporations come to argue out their legal issues, because this is still in so many ways the centre of much of the mechanisms of global capitalism. And the ability to influence and place levers and pressures on those elements of British society, I think, could have a real contribution to how global capitalism continues to function over the 21st century and by extension the impact of environmental disaster and the potential climate catastrophe over the course of the 21st century. So I think that that's some of the things that we could be asking the British government for that we don't often connect to the environmental struggle and to the climate struggle. You know, not just, you know, monitoring its own CO2 emissions, but placing pressure on its offshore territories not to allow the private registration of anonymous companies that have connections to huge swathes of oil refineries that are based in the Gulf region. You know, these kind of things, I think, are elements of anti-climate catastrophe um, protests that we don't often think about when we talk about environmental disasters. Mm. 
I think that's a really useful reflection. And I guess by way of conclusion, I wanted to turn us away from catastrophe and disaster. Because in his essay, The Empire Strikes Back, Stuart Hall writes that in the struggle for ideas, the battle for hearts and minds, which the right has been conducting with such considerable effect, bad ideas can only be displaced by better, more appropriate ones. And this makes me think of something that Robin Kelly said at the Socialism Conference uh, in 2022. He said that existential threats alone shouldn't be a basis for socialism. And this is something that you and I have talked about before, kind of how public and media discourse and the baiting and cannibalisation of black public intellectuals can kind of inure us to critique and outrage and condemnation when actually our ideas and our work are far more capacious and constructive than that and we're far more interested in love than we are in outrage for example so Mm -hmm. I wonder what are the better ideas the imaginative ideas that you think we should be leaning on to build our way out of our current predicament Mm, that's such a beautiful beautiful question to close on and it's you know it's an unending question, you know, an unending conversation, unfinished conversation in the kind of, you know, language of Stuart Hall to often be thinking about new ways to reconfigure and reimagine our social, political, economic relationships with each other for us to all live a much more exciting and realised life. Um, I think that the wrestling with the legacy of empire I think is a beginning point, but it's not the end point towards being able to reimagine human society. It's acknowledging that the primary purpose of empire is the extraction, hoarding and exploitation of material resources to benefit a tiny sliver of the global population. And the opposition to that brings up a whole new set of questions around, first, you know, in the work that I try and do, what type of relationships of trade and exchange and support and sustenance can we set up to allow for a much more equitable world but then I think after that we also want to think about what are the social familial cultural relationships we want to protect in order to allow for more realized and much more refined lives. Um, I think one element of ideas that I think in researching and writing the book I thought would be useful to try and reinvigorate in the new context of the 21st century is, you know, perhaps the apotheosis of, you know, the kind of third worldist movement of the original post-colonial age. You know, I think that, you know, by the time, you know, I and I think yourself started growing up in the 90s, early 2000s, you know, the idea of the third world was very much derogatory. It was seen Mm -hmm. very much as, you know, third world is a sign of, you know, savagery and backwardness and famine and that kind of live aid vision of what it meant to be in the third world is what we all kind of grew up with but if you go back to the 1960s 1970s there's a very different conceptualization of the third world you know this idea of the third world is first of all a positive position that is claimed by the people not just of Africa and the Caribbean and Asia, but also people in Europe and North America who aligned themselves to that politics. You know, the Black Panther Party very much saw themselves, and you know, in the United States as third worldist. You know, even people like Jean Paul Sartre very much saw himself as a third worldist in his imagination. And I think that this idea of a third world was almost like, well, there's an alternative, there's a third reality, there's another way of being in this world outside of the kind of 
draconian state communism of Stalinist Soviet Union and the you know violent exploitation of the capitalist West. And you know, this movement, when we think about people like Nkrumah and Nerere, Che Guevara, Franz Fanon, you know, would all attach themselves to this lineage. And I think that it really kind of came to its apex with the proposal for the new international economic order, you know, the got initial passing through the General Assembly of the United Nations. Mm. And I think when you look at that actual document in 2022, 2023, it feels cutting edge now, you know, and this is, you know, a document from decades ago, you know, it talks about, you know, allowing countries to have permanent sovereignty over national resources. It talks about guaranteeing a right to food. It talks about, you know, an overhaul and a reform of the rules of international trade. It talks about allowing countries and people, you know, democracy to be able to stand up to the interests of transnational capital. And, you know, this is a document and and a set of principles, a set of commitments that was eventually broken and beaten and washed away with the tide of neoliberalism that swept over the entirety of the West with Reagan and Thatcher. But the principles of it, I think, is something that still could inspire new movements, inspire new people, obviously not wholly reproducing the kind of commitments of that that third worldist moment because they had a lot of myopia and mistakes in it as well you know in terms of consideration around issues of gender were very poor by a lot of those leaders you know there was a, a leaning towards authoritarianism by a lot of those third worldist leaders and themselves and a kind of singular ethno-nationalism in a lot of their own political mm-hmm. jurisdictions and projects but I do wonder whether some of the insights that were developed by the people who initially challenged the aftermath of colonial legacy driving the Bandung moment, the non-aligned movement, the Tricontinental Conference. I wonder whether that might inspire people in, you know, the migration movement, the climate movement, data security movement in the 21st century um, by reminding us how ambitious and how imaginative people were a few decades ago about the possibility of remaking the very terms on which global society functioned. Um, so I think that's perhaps one of those ideas that we could recover and that could give us inspiration for what it looks like is going to be a challenging few years and decades um, ahead of us. Mm-hmm. Kojo, I think that's a beautiful note for us to conclude on. Thank you so much for chatting to me. Not at all. Thank you for having me, Gracie. And this has been fantastic. And I can't wait to, to listen to this and all the other episodes as well. Thank you all for listening and for helping us kick off the Locating Legacy series. Join us in two weeks' time when Françoise Vergès, author of A Decolonial Feminism, will be joining me to discuss the lessons contemporary anti-colonial politics could learn from the past. In the meantime, please subscribe to the podcast and sign up to the Stuart Hall Foundation's newsletter to be notified as soon as the next episode is live. Thank you and see you next time.